Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. The 400th anniversary of the death of Domenicos Theotokopoulos, universally known as El Greco, 1541-1614, is commemorated at the National Gallery of Art with an exhibition of 11 paintings from the Gallery, Dumbarton Oaks, and the Phillips Collection in Washington, D.C., and from the Walters Art Museum in Baltimore. With seven paintings by El Greco, the gallery has one of the largest collections of his work in the United States, made possible by the generosity of early benefactors Andrew W. Mellon, Samuel H. Cress, Joseph Widener, and Chester Dale. Ignored for centuries, El Greco was rediscovered in Spain by Picasso and other artists at the close of the 19th century. His fame spread quickly to the United States, where artists, critics, and collectors regarded his idiosyncratic style of painting as a precursor of the latest trends in modern art. While El Greco continued to have his detractors, his popularity skyrocketed, leading to what some would label a cult. To honor the exhibition, opening on November 2, 2014, Richard Kagan examines the craze for El Greco and how several of his masterpieces came to the gallery's collection. El Greco in the National Gallery of Art and Washington Area Collections, a 400th anniversary celebration, is on view through February 16, 2015. As this cartoon suggests, European old master paintings panicked whenever they saw the likes of J.P. Morgan and other wealthy American collectors enter the room. And they were right to do so. At the dawn of the 20th century, these collectors had come to buy. And buy they did. And in the process, amassed private collections that ranked among the world's finest and most diverse. To find out what just, they, just what they had purchased, in the fall of 1911, Dr. William Wilhelm Bode, the founding curator at Berlin's uh, Kaiser Frederick Museum, which is now the Bode Museum uh, on that city's uh, museum island, Bode spent a month visiting the United States with an eye towards evaluating the country's major private collections, along with several of its museums. His tour included New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Rochester, Cincinnati, Detroit, unfortunately not Washington, because there was no major public museum yet. And when his, here, and when his visit was over, Bode reflected back on what he had seen in a pair of articles published in the New York Times. He criticized the museums... He disapproved of their long hallways, their over-reliance on skylights, and unprofessional directors, and apologies if there's a museum director here in the audience. On the other hand, Bode was fulsome in his praise for the pictures he saw in the private collections, albeit with one reservation, El Greco. El Greco, he wrote, El Greco is represented by 12 of his finest examples, I do not quite understand the American appreciation of El Greco. I am repulsed by his style. (laughs) It is too mannered. Now, Bode was not alone in his criticism of El Greco's style. Others felt the same. In 1906, for example, shortly after New York's Metropolitan Museum put a newly acquired El Greco on display, One prominent collector published a letter in the Times publicly criticizing its directors for having spent $35,000 on what he called a defective and worthless picture. From an art point of view, he wrote, from an art point of view, it is as complete a failure as possible. As to composition, it is a jumble of carelessly thrown together, badly badly drawn human figures seemingly without purpose or artistic unity of colors. 
But this the collector, this critic, together with Bode, were whistling in the wind. America's love affair with El Greco was well underway and showed few signs of abating. Already in 1904, the noted connoisseur Bernard Berenson announced that a boom for El Greco was about to begin. And in 1912, Frank Mather, a professor of art history at Princeton, referred to America's love affair with the artists as tantamount to a cult. Others called it Grecomania. And by 1920, one New York artist in a lecture presented in Philadelphia likened it to a virus he called El Grecophilitis, <laughs> one whose virulence matched such other artistic maladies as Sergeant Titus, Monetitis, and Cezanitis. He, did, he spelled them a bit wrong, so I, I put the, some of the missing consonants in, in, in brackets. Now, each of these exotic ailments, I think, merits diagnosis. But today I want to focus on just one, El Grecophilitis. And in what follows, I'll try to provide a, a case history of this disease, tracing its etiology, its transmission, and how, unchecked, it mushroomed into an epidemic that affected co collectors throughout the U.S., and to be honest, and as we'll later see, at least one, several, I should say, in Europe as well. Like Ebola, however, the precise moment and place of origin of this, of this malady is difficult to pinpoint. But before getting to the etiology of the ailment, allow me to recap, recap and very briefly, in about 10 minutes, El Greco's itinerant uh, artistic career. Born in 1547 on the island of Crete, uh, then, which was then a, a colony of Venice, uh, Dominicus Theotokopoulos, that's his Greek name, was raised in Candia, the modern Heraklion, on the, on the island's north coast, where starting in, at an early age, he, he, he painted icons uh, in, in the Byzantine tradition. Sometime around 1565, he was already a master icon painter, he relocated to Venice, where, and here we have a picture of Venice, where he was exposed to the arts of such masters as Titian, Titian's uh, Diane in the, in the Shower of Gold is on view up, uh, upstairs, and Tintoretto. And it was there in Venice he began to retrain himself, albeit slowly, in the naturalistic style associated with the art of the Renaissance, in addition to expanding his color palette and, 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 and learning for the first time about the rules of perspective. In 1570, he moved again to Rome this time, where he perfected his technique in a number of, uh, 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 this is, the, 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 excuse me, I, I jumped over that, those first two ones, the first, uh, the Annunciation, the, uh, the two Annunciations, early works. This wonderful uh, Christ of cleansing the temple or driving the money changers from the temple that's here in the, the little exhibition upstairs and still not quite perfect, but he's, he's getting there. And then he, he relocates to Rome, can see, and he's beginning to perfect it. He returns to the same theme, and there he, uh, he, he, this, he's, he's a bit more confident in his figure, of his handling of figures and color and perspective, and he renders homage to four individuals in the lower right, Titian, we think, on the left, followed by Michelangelo, uh, 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 Giulio Clovio, who is a Croatian painting, painter who helped uh, introduce him to Rome, and the, the, fi the figure on the far right is disputed. Some have said it's Raphael. Some think it's a, 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 a young, an early uh, self-portrait of this man putting himself at the same rank 
as Titian and Michelangelo, with whom he had a love-hate uh, uh, relationship. He criticized Me- Michelangelo as a, or I should say, he praised Michelangelo as an architect, but criticized him as a bad painter. He thought very highly of, of himself. In any event, he, re- he, re- he also painted, uh, no, sorry, he painted another, n- number of other small commissions, but he failed to find a major commission, a major painting. And at that point, having befriended a number of Spaniards in, 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 in Rome, he decided to take, to move again, seek patronage in the Iberian Peninsula. And the place he went to is Toledo, then Spain's ecclesiastical capital, where we're soon given the opportunity to demonstrate his artistic capabilities in, on a major scale in the guise of the paintings he executed for the convent of Santo Domingo el Antiguo, which really date from the first year in, his first year in Toledo. Yet still, not everything was smooth sailing. Having received a commission from this character, the Spanish king, Philip II, the picture he completed, the martyrdom of St. Maurice, was not to the monarch's liking. And never again did El Greco secure the king's patronage. He also got into trouble in, uh, with Toledo's cathedral chapter, the largest patron, the most important patron in, 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 in Toledo, over the manner in which he executed this picture, the expolio, the disrobing of Christ. And there was a lawsuit that ensued, at which point El Greco fell back on his own resources. And having decided to re- remain in Toledo, Working essentially as an independent artist, he struck out on his own, gradually developing and perfecting his own unique style of painting, while at the same time managing to preserve his Cretan or Greek identity, always signing his pictures in Greek, Dominikos Theotokopoulos. Over time, a number of important commissions came his way, and these led to such magnificent compositions as the burial of the Count of Orgath, a picture that, uh, 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 that, that established his reputation as an artist of genius. And, and there were some other major commissions that afforded him to, uh, to, uh, 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 the opportunity to express his theories about the inherent view, beauty of elongated, serpentine-like fig- figures on a major scale. And this, of course, is the complete altarpiece of the St. Joseph chapels, the wings are upstairs in the exhibition, they're now in the National Gallery, and the, and, 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 and the main altar remains where in situ in Toledo itself. In addition, El Greco earned money as a portrait painter, and with the help, uh, uh, there's, a, excuse me, another one of his most kind of challenging and daring late compositions, The Assumption of Christ, and you can see those elongated serpentine figures uh, moving skywards and his, his effort to, to paint, as he saw it, the invisible, the impossible, the difficult. He wanted to make, he wanted movement at the same time in his paintings. But he also earned most of his bread and butter from painting portraits, such as these two you see uh, uh, currently in, in the Prado, and he did so with the help of his son, Jorge Manuel, and other assistants, and together, in a, in a, in a rather large worship, workshop, churned out scores of small-scale, often look-alike devotional pictures destined for churches, convents, oratories, and private homes in and around Toledo. A runaway success? Hardly. El Greco was forever in debt, regularly borrowing from friends simply to make ends meet. Yet for all his troubles, 
what was then called El Greco's extravagant style of painting. Extravagant in the sense of capricious, seemingly undisciplined, and his failure to conform to some of the basic rules of his craft, that extravagant style of paintings by his death in uh, 1614, 1914, came to be recognized as what we would call a brand. And this wonderful late uh, portrait, uh, we think now, is a self-portrait of El Greco towards the last years of his life. However, that same extravagant style failed to find many admirers following El Greco's death in 1614. As a result, El Greco lapsed into relative obscurity for several centuries. It was only in the 1830s when several of his compositions were placed on display in the Louvre's short-lived gallery of Spanish art did the discovery, or I should say rediscovery, of the artist begin. It was then that El Greco first caught the eye of a number of French critics, most of whom attributed what they called his mannered style of painting to an unbalanced mind. Madness, some said. In the decades that followed, however, his critical fortunes began to improve, albeit slowly. And in the the 1850s, the noted Scottish collector, William Sterling Maxwell, added the Lady in Ermine, a picture then attributed, and still still sometimes attributed to to El Greco, to uh, his growing collection of Spanish art in Glasgow. Then the, the, the French realist painter, Jean-François Millet took a similar similar shine to El Greco. And in 1869, he went as far as to acquire two of El Greco's pictures. Even then, there were few signs of any kind of El Greco disease until around 1894, when following Millet's death, the famed Impressionist artist, Edgar Degas, decided to purchase his friend's El Greco, El Greco's, adding them to his growing collection of old master art. And he did that right in 1894. And one of Degas' pictures, St. Aldefonsus, was acquired by Andrew Mellon in 1922 and now proudly hangs in the National Gallery of Art. Well, Degas' 1894 purchase coincides with what appears to have been the first outbreak of a grecophilitis. By this date, several other avant-garde Parisian collectors of Paris-based artists were also buying works attributed to El Greco. One was Henri Roy, who, when learning of Degas' purchase of El Greco's, wrote his friend, how happy I am to know that it belongs to you. Another was the Catalan artist, Santiago Roussignol, also based in Paris. He purchased two of El Greco's paintings in 1894. You can see them here, Magdalene and Peter. St. Peter, and subsequently installed them in his house museum, known as Cal Ferrat, located in the seaside town of Sitges, just south of Barcelona. And I've indicated where the, that pair of pictures uh, can be seen, and they can still be seen there today. Ever the show-off, Roussignol treated his new El Grecos as the equivalent of trophies, parading them through the narrow streets of Sitges and that year's Festa Modernista, modernistic celebrations, a celebration, I should say it was a parade and the like, meant to highlight, as Roussignol put it, the liberty of art, and especially the freedom of artists to express themselves in the manner they wished, so long it was done sincerely and intelligently. 
And in a subsequent interview, Roussignol, in what might be interpreted as the first verbal expression of of El Greco Philitis, exclaimed, and I quote, this El Greco, this El Greco is crazy, crazy because he neither followed nor, nor, nor could nor wanted to follow the rigid rules of academic drawings. From his perspective, and presumably that of Degas and his other artist friends, El Greco was the first artist to break those rules, to do that, and therefore the first modern artist. And this also explains why Roussignol decided to place El Greco, quite literally, on a pedestal, erecting in Sitges a statue in his honor in the year 1898. This is Sitges. I mean, El Greco never heard of Sitges, <laughs> but here he is. And it was just a year later that Roussignol's young artist friend, named Pablo Picasso, then residing in Barcelona, caught a bit of the El Greco fever as well. Picasso had previously made copies of some of the master's pictures in Madrid. But by 1899, as this well-known sheet of sketches he made readily suggests, he began to style himself after El Greco. The words read, and you can see it on the right, yo, El Greco, I, El Greco, or me, El Greco, modernism and El Greco, who are now marching forward, hand in hand. Now, it's at this point, circa 1900, that El Greco philitis began to take off. Its epicenter remained Paris, as it was there that Roussignol, joined by Cezanne, and then Picasso, continued to champion El Greco's cause. And further support came from uh, this Basque artist, Ignacio Sulawaga, who, following Roussignol's example, snapped up paintings by El Greco whenever and wherever he could. And his biggest purchase occurred in 19, oh, no, there it is, um, 1905, when in the southern Spanish city of Cordoba, which he visited in the company of the sculptor Auguste Rodin. Zuluaga went there with the idea of purchasing one of El Greco's last paintings, then understood as an allegory of profane love. Ignoring Rodin's advice, Zuluaga bought the canvas and placed it on his display in his Parisian studio, where it is said to have inspired Picasso's scandalous uh, uh, brothel painting known as the Demoiselle d'Avignon. And that you, there's a little uh, a plaque, a, a placard in, in, the, in the exhibition upstairs that makes this point. But this notion that we, we now call this the vision of St. John, but in 1900 and 1905, there were, people, there were critics that said, oh, no, all those nude figures, this is an allegory of profane love. It has nothing to do with uh, St. John. Maybe that's how Picasso understood it as well. Well, the opening years of the 20th century brought disease to, this disease to the United States. As in France, artists were among the first to exhibit its symptoms. One was John Singer Sargent, an artist long known for his interest in Velázquez, but who journeyed specifically to the Prado to copy works by El Greco in June of 1895. And Sargent also acquired for himself a small version of that artist, St. Martin and the Beggar. This is now in Sarasota, and it's a small version of the one uh, 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 here on display in the exhibition, and almost identical to the, to, the, to the small modello, the smaller version of the painting that's upstairs that was part of the Mellon collection in the 1920s. The next U.S. artist to feel the effects of El Greco was this guy, 
William married Chase. Chase was another Velasquez enthusiast, but he also embraced El Greco, and as early as 1902 advised the Pennsylvania Museum, the forerunner of today's Philadelphia Museum of Art, to acquire its first El Greco, a large crucifixion, a purchase that made that museum the first in the United States to, to, to purchase one of this artist's works. But when first put on display the following year, Chase, who just happened to be present, overheard one critic remark, and I quote, why should a picture so unpleasant be hung upon these walls? Who is responsible for its presence here? The indignant Chase allegedly responded, and I quote, I am proud and happy to state that I am the person responsible for the purchase of that picture, and I would have you understand, sir, that you are standing before the work of a great master. End of quote. I'm sure he mumbled something else, much less pleasant under his breath at that particular moment. The Paris-based Mary Cassatt was the third American artist to exempt them to exhibit symptoms of the disease. When she caught it, it's not entirely clear, inasmuch as her interest in Spain and Spanish art dated from the 1870s when she resided for a time in the southern Andalusian town of Seville, executing a number of paintings with Spanish themes. But Cassatt probably got disease or caught the disease from her friend Degas, indicating in one letter, and I quote, El Greco's merit is that he was two centuries ahead of his time, and that is why painters, Manet amongst them, thought so much of his art. The recipient of that letter was her lifelong friend, Louisine Havermeyer, who you see on the left. And it was Louisine, together with her husband, Harry, they were both collectors, among the first Americans to purchase works by Manet, Degas, and other Impressionists. And, there, and there, it was then, in the spring of 1901, the, the Havermeyers visited Cassatt in, in, in Paris. And Cassatt took them both on a trip to Spain to visit the Prado and to learn more about El Greco and Goya, another artist who had caught her eye. In Madrid, Cassatt spotted a small El Greco in the window of an antique shop and persuaded Louisine to buy it. She also took the couple to Toledo to see the burial of the Count of Orgas, a work which so impressed Harry Havemeyer that he is said to have remarked, and I quote, this is one of the greatest pictures I have ever seen. Yes, perhaps the greatest. That picture was not for sale, but thanks to Cassatt's sleuthing, others were, among them El Greco's portrait of a cardinal. But still, Harry was not impressed. Spectacles in a portrait? I will not consider it. Well, there matters stood until 1902, when for the first time, the director of the Prado, a man named Aureliano Beruete, eager to sell the El Grecos in his own private collection, arranged for the Prado to organize a first-time-ever exhibition of El Greco's work, some from the Prado, others from private collections whose owners, eager to grow, capitalize on the growing demand for El Greco paintings, were more than happy to lend to the show. So the Prado was, basically became an art gallery, and this exhibition was a kind of a showcase for works that were too soon to be sold. And among the pictures on display was the Cardinal, another 
There are several others that would soon wind up in American collections with help, help from the formidable Parisian art de- de- dealer, Paul Durand Roel. Now, in the end, both Roel, oops, Back. Uh, both Durell and, and, and Cassatt convinced Harry Havermeyer to purchase the Cardinal, although she failed to get him to buy this portrait uh, of, a, of the Trinitarian friar, Felix Hortensio de Padovicino. Why buy a monk when you can have a Cardinal? <laughs> Havermeyer supposedly remarked. And at that point, boom, the hawks were in. John Singer Sargent quickly stepped in. And upon his recommendation, Boston's Museum of Fine Arts purchased this portrait in 1904. And when news of this purchase reached Bernard Berenson, then Florence, he was thrilled. Quote, we are very much excited to hear that the museum has got a real El Greco. We have worshipped him for years. For though he generally paints rubbish, he sometimes rises to great sublimity of imagination, daring drawing, and overwhelming Coloring, end of quote. And Berenson was right. Well, just then, El Greco Philitis began to go viral among museums and collectors alike. And such was the demand that dealers had no difficulty selling any work attributed to the master, whether authentic or not. Scholarship on the artist and his oeuvre was still rudimentary and remained as such, as the cardinal, sorry, it remained as such until 1908, when a Spanish scholar by the name of Cosillo published what amounted to the first catalogue raisonné of El Greco's work. But many of Cosillo's attributions were mistaken, with the result that many buyers wound up not with the genuine article, but also with studio pieces, pictures by El Greco's son, Jorge Manuel, copies, and occasionally modern fakes, all of which were then attributed to the hand of the master. Now, the cautious... Cautious, however, did fairly well. The Met, for example. As noted earlier, the, the, the Met acquired its first, and I should say genuine El Greco, a ma- the magnificent adoration, from a Parisian dealer in July 1905, thanks in part to the intervention of Berenson. Berenson had wanted to sell this picture to Isabella Stewart Gardner in Boston, but Gardner balked at the price. 35K was too much, too steep for her blood. So Berenson looked to the Met and talking up the pictures in a series of wonderful letters, talking up the picture as marvelous, perhaps the finest in existence. It is the boldest, most dazzling, most whimsical, most gorgeous canvas ever imaginable. You can see Berenson, the salesman, talking right there. <laughs> Still, the museum hesitated, because, largely because its director, a man named Purden Clark, had no love for El Greco. But in the end, Berenson prevailed eventually managing to overcome uh, Clark's, and I quote, determination to dislike and disapprove of the work. Now, as I suggested at the outset, the Met's new accession sparked controversy as soon as the picture went on display in 1906. And this helps to explain why later that year, Harry Havermeyer was unable to persuade its director, that is, Pardon again, Pardon Clark, to purchase a second El Greco, uh, his early masterpiece, The Magnificent Assumption of the Virgin, the first picture that uh, El Greco had executed when he arrived in Spain. The Met's loss, however, proved to be Chicago's gain. 
Inasmuch as that city's art institute jumped at the chance to purchase a painting which soon became the nucleus of that museum's important collection of Spanish art. Now, we're, at, we're now at the moment when each of the country's major museums, Boston, New York, Philly, Chicago, having acquired an El Greco, retreated for a time from the market, and in doing so, opened a space that private collectors raced to fill. One of the first to do so was the Baltimore collector, Henry Walters, who acquired St. Francis receiving the stigmata, a picture, that figured in an, a, figured, a picture that figured in an important collection of old master art that he acquired in Rome. And this picture forms part of the current exhibition. Another who jumped in was, was Boston's Frank McCumber, who ordered a small El Greco, this head of Christ, to his collection in 1903. And it's now in Indianapolis. Next came Archer Milton Huntington, founder of New York's Hispanic Society, a combination library and museum dedicated to showcasing the art and literature of the Iberian world. Between 1904 and 1908, Huntington purchased in rapid-fire succession, one after another, four works by El Greco, only two of which turned out to be authentic. And these are the two in the Hispanic Society up on 150. Third Street, and, and you can see them now. They're on display in the small record collection, ex exhibition uh, in the Met in New York. And still in that game, oops, was uh, Louise Havermeyer. She didn't give up yet. And, and, and with help from Cassatt, she acquired this famous uh, picture, a real prize, El Greco's haunting view of Toledo. And in her, in, her, in her memoirs, Louisine, looking back on both her and her husband's passion for El Greco, offered the remark, and I quote, we could not resist his art, its individuality. Its color attracted us with irresistible force. We determined to buy every work that we could, end of quote. But that determination, and they had a lot of money, U.S. Sugar Trust, Domino Sugar today, that determination went unrealized, in part, in part because other well-heeled collectors had also succumbed to El Greco philitis. Two were from Philadelphia, the first be, being this guy, Peter Widener. His painting his portrait someplace here, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Widener first ma manifested symptoms of the disease in 1905 when he purchased this, the so-called family of El Greco then attributed to El Greco, but which turned out to be a 19th century fake. <laughs> Widener's heirs, Joseph, Widener Library, Harvard, sold it to another Philadelphia collector, uh, who then in turn sold it to Madrid's uh, Academy of Fine Arts. Why they bought it, who knows? <laughs> Museums sometimes get it wrong. <laughs> but Widener got it right, however, when in October 1906, he acquired these two pictures, now in the collection of the National Gallery. The pictures in question had previously hung in a small private chapel, that of St. Joseph in Toledo, owned by an old but somewhat impoverished noble family. Eager for cash, the pictures in question were furtively spirited out of Toledo, made their way to Paris, and it was there that Widener purchased them. News of that purchase prompted a furious debate <coughs> in Spain's parliament, 
with some deputies calling for tough export controls on the nation's artistic treasures, while others defended the right of private individuals, as well as churches, to dispose of these treasures as they saw fit. But as the Cortes debated that particular issue, Cortes being the Spanish parliament, Wider Wider had his prize El Greco ship from Paris to his sprawling 100-plus room mansion in Elkins Park, called Linwood Hall, and there he put them on display, giving them pride of place in the house's central gallery. And there you can see them right there and there. But if Widener made some mistakes in his rush to acquire works by El Greco, so so did his fellow Philadelphia collector, John G. Johnson. Johnson and Johnson? A lot of money there. Johnson had previously supported the Pennsylvania Museum's decision to acquire Agreco's crucifixion. But starting in 1908, he was determined to add an El Greco or two to his own collection. In the end, he got three, with assistance from Robert, excuse me, Roger Fry, a well-known connoisseur, editor of the Burlington Magazine for a time, who attributed El Greco's genius to the artist's isolation and strangeness. The first, Johnson, there's Johnson and his little museum on Broad Street in Philadelphia. And he bought this little thing, this little pieta, dating from uh, the, could be uh, Rome. Some people have said maybe it's late, his, El Greco's late Venetian period. But it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cute little uh, picture. And, and in May 1908, Fry writes Johnson, I'm glad you got the little Greco. The little Greco. It's a wonderful tragedy in miniature and such strange, resplendent, and terrible, terrible coloring. Fry proved equally enthusiastic when a few months later, he learned again at his suggestion, Johnson had purchased a second El Greco, this portrait of a woman. I'm glad you have got that El Greco portrait. It is a most curious and haunting portrait and throws a new light on El Greco's character. It is more balanced and at the same time more tender than anything else I know of him. Perhaps. But this attribution turned out to be spurious. (laughs) Totally nothing to do with El Greco. But fortunately, Fry got it right in 1913 when Johnson purchased his third El Greco, another crucifixion still to be seen at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. When 1908, 1909, El Greco, Philitis, is now best classified as epidemic. And its spread, having been assisted by critics and commentators on both sides of the Atlantic. One was the influential New York writer, Charles Caffin, who, starting, starting around 1905, touted El Greco's modern art of expression and insisted that his adroit use of distortion intensification of color and expressive use of light was the source of much of what was modern in modern art. And another commentator was the avant-garde New York collector John Quinn. In a letter dating from 1911, he listed the artists whose work he would acquire if he ever became rich. I would first purchase, if I could get them, four or five paintings by El Greco then about the same number of the best paintings by Goya, the five or, then five or six of Daumier, then Cezanne, and then, and then only the moderns, Picasso, Patisse, Durand, Brock, and then some other, some, some other modern Frenchman. In the end, Quinn got an El Greco, 
uh, Christ driving the money changers from the temple. We don't know where it is right now. It's location unknown, but only one. The reason he only got only one, because he was in competition with a host of other top, top shelf collectors. Uh, and Quinn, attorney, an attorney by profession, he could not, didn't have the pockets that these characters, deep pockets that these other characters did. Now, there's far too many of these, these collectors to mention all of their names today, but the top players included several New York bankers, Robert Lehman, Lehman Brothers, bought this, uh, uh, Christ Carrying the Cross, now in the Met, uh, and am I here wrong? Well, that's out of place. And another man by the name of George Blumenthal, he inquired three works attributed to El Greco, the most important of which was the magnificent adoration that he later donated to the, uh, to the Met. That, that, that was out of place. Then there's the famed society jeweler, jeweler Michael Dreiser, whose holy family with St. Anne and the infant St. Infant John the Baptist came to the National Gallery in 1949. Now enter now into the, this same little race for all Grecos, the fabulously, fabulously wealthy steel magnate, Henry Clay Flick, Frick. In 1909, Frick traveled to Spain together with his daughter, Helen. And I'll stop in Madrid. They visited the home of the director of the Prado, Barrowetti, the man who organized that exhibition back in 1902. And he was still eager to sell El Grecos, his El Grecos, or those he had gotten from his friends. On the the visit to Barrowetti's house, Helen reports, in her diary, it's a wonderful read. He presented me, I mean, he, Barretti, presented me with, two, with a lovely picture. And I saw two El Grecos, which Papa bought. <laughs> Papa. One of them was this, the St. Jerome, that, which Frick, like a hunting trophy, proudly displayed over his mantelpiece in the sitting room of his uh, modest New York home. <laughs> the other was this, Christ driving the money changes from the temple. But Frick was still not through with El Greco. He wanted one more. And in, 1945, in 1914, he purchased the artist's portrait dating from uh, uh, El Greco's Roman period of Vicentio Anastasi, Knight of Malta, subject of a small recent exhibition in New York. But now in 1914, outbreaks of El Grecophilitis have been registered across North America. One flare-up occurred in Montreal, where it infected uh, William Cornelius Van Horn, an American railroad magnate based in that city. Think Canadian Pacific Railways. Van Horn had begun collecting in the 1890s, but starting around 1908, he turned his attention to Spanish art and managed to acquire four paintings then attributed to El Greco. The most famous is the portrait that you see on the screen. And another outbreak occurred in Chicago, Its victims there included Charles Deering, a collector who had made a fortune in agricultural machinery. John Deering Company. He married a McCormick Reapers. You got it? Uh, A frequent visitor to Paris, Deering had befriended Roussignol, and Roussignol invited him to visit the little town of Sitges in 1909. And once in Sitges, Deering liked it so much that he purchased uh, an old hospital just down the street from Calferat, transformed that old hospital into Maricel, a grandiose house museum, uh, that means son, uh, sea and son in, in Catalan, a grandiose house museum, and he f- filling it with all manner of Spanish art, both medieval and modern. His collection, Deering's collection, included an astonishing seven El Grecos, among them another version of St. Martin and the Beggar, 
uh, the small version of the one here in Washington. Today's euphoria for El Greco. These words came from one of the dealers from whom Deering bought his paintings. And this dealer, a Catalan, was right. By 1911-14, El Greco Velitis had spread to Europe. The wealthy Austrian Jewish collector, Baron Herzog, was particularly hard hit, as you can see from this photo of his studio, lined with works from El Greco, most of which are now in Budapest, the museum in that city. Whereas back here in the States, articles such as this one in the Times alerted to the public to the growing popularity of El Greco and how, how collectors had fallen under the spell of this fiery and unequaled genius. Now, underscoring that spell, and indeed the reason why I, I think why El Greco Philitis had become ep epidemic, was the link that both critics and collectors had established between the artist's extravagant style and that of the imp impressionists, the expressionists, the cubists, and other avant-garde artists who were featured in the famous New York Armory show of 1913. So strong was that connection that it prompted another critic to write, now we moderns are all looking at El Greco. He links yesterday to today. We moderns, we moderns. I like that phrase. And the link here, and the link referred to here between El Greco and the moderns explains why virtually all collectors of modern art were so keen also at the same time to acquire at least one El Greco. One was the idiocentric uh, 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 Philadelphia collector, Dr. Albert Barnes, whose house museum in Maryland, Marion, Pennsylvania, and now in Center City, Philadelphia, juxtaposed works by El Greco. He acquired four, not all of them authentic, but that's okay, with works of modern art. Here you see that uh, hanging on, uh, on the right. It's hard to get color pictures out of the barns, and, and there's, we think that, I think that's Van Gogh's, that nice juxtaposition. But, or you could, here in Washington, Washington's own Duncan Phillips, who in 1922 edited El Greco's Repentant St. Peter to his growing collection of modern art, evidently because he considered El Greco, and here I quote him directly, the prophet of modern art the founder of dynamic expressionism, and thus an artist who anticipated modern art. And similar reasoning helps to explain why other collectors with a penchant for modern art followed Phillips' example. They included Chester Dale. He bought this El Greco's uh, uh, St. Jerome in 1931. It's in the exhibition upstairs. belongs to this museum. Ralph Coe in Cleveland, another collector of modern art, bought this uh, holy family with St. Anne, or I love this last one, Marion McKay in San Antonio, bought this head of price that looks like the one that's in Indianapolis, and, and here a little party that went on uh, uh, when it was, I think it's, that date's from around 1937, that picture, maybe a little later, I can't tell by the dresses, maybe somebody here can help. <laughs> now, to be sure, other collectors looked to El Greco for other reasons. They included Andrew Mellon here in Washington, Two pictures upstairs in the collection. John Ringling in Sarasota. Isn't El Greco still in Sarasota? The Putnam sisters in San Diego. They were simply, when they bought El Greco's, they were simply attempting to round out their collections and add an El Greco to their, to their, to their an ongoing collection, mostly of old masters. As for Robert and Mildred and Robert Bliss, 
to Washington collectors known for their interest in Byzantine art, their attraction to El Greco is best explained by his Greekness, what they understood or perceived as the artist's Byzantine roots. Now, the Bliss's main artistic advisor in the 1920s and 30s was a certain loyal Tyler, And in 1931, he informed them that an astonishingly beautiful El Greco was available in Madrid. I'm so excited about this thing that I can hardly attend to business, Tyler wrote. And the following day, he wrote again, El Greco at his highest is one of the great magicians of the world. There's no time to be lost. If you want want it, we must act at once, and in any case, before people start going to Spain for the spring season. And then he advised, I think it would be unsafe to buy the picture in Spain. One could make an offer payable in Paris and in dollars or francs, which might prove attractive. One doesn't want to buy it in Spain and then have the Spanish authorities come down upon it as a monumento nacional, a a national monument. Please cable me as soon as you've had time to reflect about it. Now, at the time, the Blisses had not yet seen this picture, the picture, the visitation, now in the exhibition and one of El Greco's haunting later works. But they were eager to get it, only to encounter some of the roadblocks of the kind that Tyler had warned. El Greco, by the 1930s, the Spanish Republic, was a monumento nacional. For four, almost five years, nothing happened. Then enter this character. Devious, and you're right. Decidedly Arthur Bine, and a decidedly unscrupulous but knowledgeable American antiques dealer based in Madrid, who was skilled in getting around the roadblocks put up by the Spanish government, and who once boasted, and I quote, my one role in life is taking down old works of art, conserving them to the best of my ability, and shipping them to America. <laughs> the machinations Bind deployed to smuggle the visitation out of Spain remain unknown. But by January 1936, it was in the hands of a New York dealer, and before the end of that month, it was hanging in the music room of the Bliss's magnificent Georgetown mansion, known to us as Dumbarton Oaks. And there it is. You can barely see it in this picture. Now, in the years that followed, other Grecos would continue to come to the States. The most spectacular, I think, being the National Gallery's Laurakon, formerly the, the, the property of Prince Paul of Yugoslavia and how the gallery got it is a very interesting story. I don't have time to, to recount today. The spectacular St. John, now the visit of St. John, that had once belonged to, to uh, uh, Sulawaga. The Met acquired it uh, from Sulawaga's heirs in 1956. And El Greco's portrait of what we think is Francisco de Pisa, which was acquired by the Kimball Museum in Fort Worth in 1977. Now, by that date, El Greco-Philitis had lost much of its earlier virulence, but it was no means by extinguished. So to conclude this presentation, let me reflect back uh, 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 on an individual many in this room will remember, John Carter Brown, <laughs> served as director of this institution from 1969 until 1992. Now, as Neil Harris reports in his recent book, Capital Culture, only months before his death in, uh, in 2002, Carter reminisced about growing up in his family's house in Providence. Lucky man, where a, a, a painting by El Greco hung alongside a drawing by Leonardo da Vinci. Greco did not sp- specify, uh, Carter did not specify the El Greco in question, but it was definitely this picture of St. Dominic, 
which his father had purchased sometime around 1928. Now, Harris, in his book, does not, again, does not say so directly, but this picture, I think, helps to account for Carter's enthusiastic endorsement of the large El Greco exhibition held here at the gallery in 1982, and in which, as Faya mentioned earlier, I had the good fortune to participate. And it also explains why, a few years later, Carter did all he could to persuade Glasgow's Pollock House to lend the gallery El Greco's Lady in Ermine here, a picture that Carter was desperate to include in his massive, or his magnificent British country house exhibition of 1985. But in the end, a picture that he was unable to get. When he learned that the picture was not forthcoming, Carter drafted a menu, a menu, a memo, expressing his distress. I quote, we should try to pull out the stops. Americans love El Greco. <laughs> Carter was by no means infallible, but on this occasion, Carter was right. And thank you very much. Do we have some comments or questions? Yes, sir. Yes, in the middle. The paintings that were acquired at the early stages of uh, El Greco feeling of where were they found? Were they in churches? Were they in private collections? Uh, how did they come into uh, the area? Where the how did they get onto the market? Most were private collections. Okay, I'll come It's so Sorry. nice to have him. I like to get sprung from this podium. <laughs> Most were in private collections. What, in, 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 what happened in the 18th? Well, first, let me. There's three stages of this. A few wound up in Paris by the 1830s because they were taken by Napoleon's generals during this War of Spanish Independence, what we, the English know as the Peninsula War. So there were some El Grecos already in, in France and then, that later went onto the market. Then what was called the kind of the Decimotopia. When, when, the, when, the, when uh, one of Spain's liberal governments in the 1830s took away the properties from the churches and monasteries, many of the many of the El Grecos and works of art were pulled out of the churches and, 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 and monasteries and put into quote provincial collections, and and some of those. Those, there was not many controls over all those little collections, and some kind of filtered out into the marketplace. But the vast majority came from private collections. Uh, uh, the, the, the devotional pictures, the, uh, the series of the apostles and the like, the big altarpieces were hard to get. And the, one, the reason why Widener was able to buy these two pictures that you see upstairs is because that was a family private chapel. And they could, say, they could, they could flog it as they, they said, no, it's all right. It's our family patrimony, and family patrimony trumps national patrimony. That was the big debate. And so that, that, that's how those came onto the market. But for the most, and one or two, like the big assumptions in, 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 in Chicago, that was one of these convents that was broken up in the 1830s. So in a sense, there were several paths to the market. And, uh, uh, and, and then the Spanish government finally kind of tried to start putting controls on it during the early years of the Spanish Republic, 1932-33, saying, hey, they developed the notion of national patrimony. We have to control the export of this stuff. But then after the Franco regime was, after, the, after World War II, the Franco regime was dead broke. Some, they, they allowed some other pictures to, to, uh, to, to, to leave the country, and that, there was another wave of pictures coming to the, to the, to the United States uh, just after World War II. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Yes, Mr. Lev. You've made reference several times to the way that uh, El Greco foreshadowed modern art, and you used some adjectives to, to talk about that. But I wonder if you could summarize in what way he, he did that. That, it's not me. <laughs> I'm not saying that. It's it's you know it's people like Caffin and the like, uh, and all of these critics of the late 19th and late 20th century, including Degas. They, what they saw the fact that he wasn't an academic painter, that he his 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 elongated figures, his use of color and the like, seemed to break the rules as it was understood in the 16th century, didn't conform to what they understood as Venetian art or Roman art. Something They saw some kind of transformation that took place to this man's art when he got to Spain and he was mixing his old Byzantine traditions with his, this very expressive use of light and color and elongated figures. And in a sense, they saw this as something that no other painter was doing. And it's one of the reasons he was not well thought of in the 17th century. But they said, hi, this guy breaks the rules. This is the liberty of art. This is exactly what modern art is all about. This is what we're trying to do. Yes, that lady left. I, I moved here in 1982, and instead of looking for a place to live, I spent my time at the El Greco exhibit. <laughs> I still proudly have this catalog. And uh, about seven or eight years ago, I was uh, looking at a home for sale, and by golly, they had the poster. And I wanted to buy the poster, not the house, but they wouldn't sell <laughs> We might have a few sections. I remember at the time, uh, or around that time, there used to be a theory. I think it was a dentist who came up with this theory that uh, the, the elongated figures were due to El Greco having astigmatism. I don't know if you're it, was, it was an ophthalmologist, not a dentist. Oh. <laughs> we don't, we're not talking about the dentation problems of St. Peter here. <laughs> he may have had a problem with his dentist. I'm sure he did. But... <laughs> No, no, there was, there was a whole, from, from 1830s to the 1920s, you, you name a theory and you can, anything was being applied to him. First was madness, unbalanced mind. Who else would paint this crazy way? Then Spanish nationalism comes in 1890s, 1900. Ah, he, this man, this Greek, this, this, this transplanted Greek is, is absorbing the soul of Spain. He's absorbing the mysticism of St. Teresa, the future St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross. And this is the, so he becomes a kind of a, an, a, 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 a religious fanatic. He's born again in, a, in, a, in, a, in the Catholic mode in, 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 in Toledo. And that's the cause of this. But, and, and then the, the eyesight problem. Of course, if you look closely at his pictures, you, may, you can see he, the, the all elongated figures, the serpentine-like figures, generally applied to mythical figures or divine figures and the like. His p- portraits are quite different. And he often, if you look closely in the bottom registers, a little, there's a little still life. Bits of earth. You know, he, he, he was perfectly in touch with reality. But I think the great discovery, uh, and it's really only now that we really absorb the lesson, just around the time of the El Greco exhibition of 1982, um, two young Spaniards, and particularly Fernando Marias, really the great Marias, uh, uh, El Greco expert who's in the, in the, in the movie, uh, you'll see him talking, discovered in, in, in the National Library in Madrid an annotated copy of Vitruvius's Ten Books on Architecture. And Fernando was going through all of these books, and he, kept, he started reading this. It was written in Spaniolo, half Spanish, half Italian. And then he, and he said, well, this is curious. And then all of a sudden, the, the, whoever's writing said, he referred to my boyhood in Crete. So it was El Greco's own annotations, page after pages, I mean, paragraphs upon paragraphs, in which he expounds his own art, his, gives 
kind of explains a kind of his theory about art, his ideas about art, why the, the why you need movement, why you need color, the superiority of painting over over, over sculpture, why he doesn't like why he doesn't like Michelangelo. And the like. And then, we, then there was another, he also, there was, he owned a copy of Vasari's Lives of the Famous Painters, in which he, he also entered, into mar, entered marginality into it. And there's a number of other books that he owned. And, those, and, and essentially that, the, 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 this, these writings by El Greco, and he was often said to have written a whole theory, of, a, a treatise on art, which is, was circulated for a time in Madrid, but has subsequently disappeared. Um, this has given a sense he had. He, he was elaborating his own ideas about art, uh, and rather, it wasn't spiritualism on the one hand. It wasn't because he had bad eyesight, and he, and he was certainly not nuts. <laughs> but he was a difficult guy. He was a headstrong and arrogant man, but he did have an artistic theory that he was trying to elaborate and express in his in his paintings, particularly large-scale ones. And fortunately, he found in Toledo a number of like-minded individuals who put up with his ways and were willing to, to support him in, the, in, 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 in this endeavor. Does that make so? I, about his dentistry, I don't know. <laughs> I can imagine it was bad. But he had some medical, had some doctor friends. They'd probably just pull them. <laughs> yes? Richard, thank you very much. Um, I was surprised to see that Jean-Francois Millet was the first 19th century painter to, to respond to Albert. We don't have a verbal about it, but he bought it. But that he bought these pictures. And I wonder if you, because that is so out of whack with the later um, pickup of his work by modernists, do you have any speculations on what it was that Millet would have seen in him? Was it perhaps related to the religiosity of the subject matter or the... Any you're the you're the expert in 19th century French painting. You tell me. <laughs> I'm dying to know. <laughs> Some traces of uh, because Millet wrote so many letters of why right. he was interested in. I haven't read Millet's letters on this. I don't think we have any t- t- actually verbal testimony. I mean written testimony of, uh, uh, on this question. Delacroix was apparently interested uh, also in, in, in El Greco uh, and Manet as well. So then I think they just saw something very personal, very expressive, very individual. I don't think it's the religiosity they were after. I don't know anything about Jean-Francois Millet's uh, religion. But I think it is basically they see this, this painter, painter as a, a non-academic, anti-academic painter and exactly what they would try to do. That's, that would be my take. And I think it's, another, it's an aesthetic reaction rather than a religious, artistic reaction rather than a, a religious one. Yes, in the back, the young, yes. You. Um, and then, you, then spoke, you. When you spoke of American collectors going after El Greco as a link back after their love of Impressionism, I was wondering how you would reconcile the very disparate subject matters because... El Greco, a lot of his paintings are very religious, very devotional, and Impressionism is, you know, right. anything else. But they, they, they see sincerity. They see the four. The four. They just. I think that they can't buy secular themes. There are very few of them. They, they just want an El Greco. And they want, because they see him, because I think they've learned from the painters that this is the guy that, from which we, in a sense, he foreshadowed what we're doing 
the Impressionists and Expressionists. And so that would link the, the collection. And it's interesting, I gave a similar version of this talk in Baltimore last week, and there's a, a, a collector in, uh, in, in, in Baltimore who acquired a small El Greco St. Francis, 1998-2000. He was a collector of Expressionists and German constructivists. And there it is in the middle of his di- living room, he's got this El Greco standing out there. I said, what is going on? I didn't understand, I didn't know then that link how powerful that link was for many of these collectors. Yes, now the young in white. Yes. With the prolific production of all these paintings from the workshop at El Greco, one of the statements upstairs talks about, quote, unquote, probably done by one of the people in his workshop under his close supervision. So how do you know which one is a real, quote, unquote, El Greco? Is it one that he assigned with initials? Did he sign everything with his initials? Was there documentation? Right. He learned certain techniques from Titian, as David Brown would know. Everything that's, everything that's a Titian is not necessarily a Titian and, uh, because of the workshop issue, but a signature is the closest you're going to get to it. You can have, a, a, have, a, have an assistant produce a, a signature as well. But what we know is the following. He has a son, two, two other assistants. He has a gallery. He has two rooms in, the, in Toledo. He has his, where he paints, and he has the equivalent of a showroom with paintings large and small. Lot, and, and, and you can see from his death inventories in 1614 and those of his son in 1621, I think it was 26, that there were literally dozens of St. Saint Francis's, St. Dominic's, Holy Families, and the like. And he said at one point, he told a visitor, he said, I, I keep copies on hand of every work I've ever painted. Now these basically, it's a showroom. And you're the, you're the abbess of a, of, a, of, a, of a convent. You say, well, I lo- you know, we, we need a St. Francis. He's good for reducing our time in purgatory. But you know, our, our wall is this big and yours is this big. Well, so how much will you pay? If you, more you pay, you get El Greco with a, with a signature. There are dozens of these. There, there are multiples. It's a workshop. And some of them were turned into, into, into by Diego de Astor, an engraver, a contemporary engraver. Most people can't afford a, 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 a painting, but they can afford a, 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 little, a, a little engraving of St. Francis or Dominic. So there's a whole industry going on. Now, the problem is, is I'm not an art historian, but the problem is the, the, the what is a real El Greco, which is El Greco in Saint in Jorge Manuel, which is El Greco in studio. This battle will go on, and it, sometimes the herb expands, and sometimes it shrinks, and it, 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 it changes with the generation. It's all in the eyes of the beholder, and but generally they're beginning to narrow down on a kind of a field of what they see as authentic El Grecos. But now you say El Greco and and, and workshop or Greco and somebody or other, and we know that later in life, let's say his last 10 years, Jorge Manuel was doing more and more, particularly after 1609, when you, that, that old portrait of, I mean, that self-portrait. He, was, he had a, a serious health crisis around 1609. We don't think that he was painting all that much, and many of his later works, such as the adoration that's in the Met, the, the Blumenthal picture, was probably more, as much Jorge Manuel as it was uh, um, uh, 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 El Greco. Although, it was supposedly the picture that he had he had designed for his own uh, burial place. Yes. Um, I love that picture of uh, the the view of Toledo. And it, it's famous. Yeah, it's it's just so gorgeous. It just reminded me of like when Rubens would paint for his own pleasure. Is that 
Was that view of Toledo just for himself? Oh, no. Um, uh, I, uh, one of those articles in that 1902 journal, it was commissioned by a man named Salazar de Mendoza, who was the head of a monastery, a, a hospital, who had commissioned several works by El Greco. And, and he was interested in the location of a certain monastery and where it was and, uh, that had disappeared. And it was in this guy's collection. So it basically was commissioned from, a, from, a, from one of El Greco's friends who, who, if you look closely, I go back to it, he puts this monastery long dis- disappeared on what we think is a cloud to show that it's no longer really there. So it wasn't, he's not painting for his own pleasure. Most of this is, was commissioned work. Although he did have copies of things, probably kept for his own aid memoir in, in, in his studio. My pleasure. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast. 